Comply or explain requirements were supposed to increase women's representation on Canada's boardrooms. While the number of women is going up, is it improving fast enough? And did the new requirements have the intended impact? Dr. Susan Black of the Conference Board of Canada and Rob Davis from KPMG in Canada join us to talk about why diversity at the top of an organization is important, different ways of getting there, and how directors can lead the way. You'll hear this conversation goes beyond gender. It's about creating boardrooms that are as diverse as Canada is, with many races, genders, and peoples at the table. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. So improving the diversity of boards of directors is a challenge that many regulators, policymakers, and experts have tried to tackle. Yet year after year, progress is still too slow. In many ways, boards remain male, pale, and stale. I'm joining this episode by Dr. Susan Black, CEO of the Conference Board of Canada, and Rob Davis, the chair of KPMG in Canada's Board of Directors, and who is also their Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer. In addition, both Susan and Rob are experienced directors and have sat on numerous boards. We're going to talk about recent conference board research that looked at the pace of change for women's representation and opportunities they see to increase the diversity of Canadian boardrooms. Susan and Rob, welcome to Bright Future. Thanks very much, Michael. Delighted to be here, Michael. Why is women on boards such an important topic in board governance? For the last two decades, there's been an abundance of research that has demonstrated that diversity, when you've got an inclusive environment, produces better business results, better results for organizations. And some of that research is very clearly targeted towards boards. We know that boards that are more diverse often benefit from more vigorous conversations, more creativity, and so on. That makes a strong argument for making sure that we have the policies and practices in place to continue to diversify boards, not only bringing women on, but bringing people from other different identity groups on. There's a compelling business case for this. And where did this project come from? We've been looking at this area for a long time because of the compelling business reasons. There was regulatory change in 2014, and in that year, most provinces and territories who are under the Canadian Securities Administrator umbrella adopted the Comply or Explain regulation, essentially requiring public companies to disclose the number of women on their boards and their efforts to recruit women. And the underlying theory there was that if there was disclosure broadly, that meant there was transparency. And with transparency, organizations would self-reflect, would do the right thing, would take whatever steps or measures they needed to to diversify boards. That's obviously a laudable goal and one that's in line with better business outcomes. Clearly, we watched those numbers increase over the years. But the question we wanted to know is, was the regulation really achieving what it set out to achieve? Was that transparency creating faster change? We looked at the pace of change. And what we fundamentally found is, Although numbers are increasing, the numbers aren't increasing at a greater pace than they were prior to the regulation. There's still a ways to go in terms of closing that gap. We found out that there is an opportunity to fill the roles faster. And if we filled them faster, obviously, we would reach parity faster. Right now, what our study showed is we're about 20 years away from having gender parity on boards. At today's rate, half of the empty board seats are filled by men, a quarter are filled by women. And the other quarter of seats are either left vacant for a while or eliminated. If organizations actually move to be much more intentional with how they filled their board seats and went half men and half women, we'd be at parity within five years. Our work focused very much on what needs to happen to get Canada's 
private sector companies to a state of gender parity much faster because that's the ideal state because that's what helps produce better outcomes for everybody. Rob, why is this an important topic for you? Michael, women make up 50% of our population, so representation obviously matters, but, but there's still a gap. So our work is certainly not done in terms of gender diversity, but we really need to go beyond gender to ensure all women, including women of color, as well as indigenous peoples, people with disabilities, LGBTQ2+, people with international work experience, generational differences, et cetera, are represented. But why does this matter? Because board diversity really should represent the diversity of our people and communities that we operate in and serve in. The lack of diversity really creates blind spots, right? It creates a bit of an echo chamber in uh, boardrooms. True diversity is going to make for better decision making and bring in new, fresh thinking and also some more creativity. So it's not just the right thing to do. It makes for better, stronger and more future proof boards. But it's also more than just bringing diverse people into our boardrooms, though. Boards need to be inclusive. You can bring as much diversity to the table as you want, but you need to have collaborative discussion and inclusive decision-making processes to really ensure that you can bring the value of that diversity to bear. For example, in my new board chair role, I'm making a conscious effort to make sure that at all of our board meetings, all of the voices around the table are being heard, especially the dissenting ones. Susan, you talk about how the research was founded on assessing the impact of the complier explain. And it sounds like there wasn't much of an impact. Do you think legislation was the wrong way for the regulators to go? Well, we didn't look at whether the government did the right or the wrong thing. We wanted to know if it worked. It didn't hurt anything. You could argue anecdotally, it kept some people's attention on the goal of trying to diversify boards. But it certainly six years in now, leaves open the question of what else do we need to be doing to create that gender parity? And to Rao's point, even more importantly, to diversifying boards more generally. I think the continued focus on this is an important outcome of the regulation, but the slowness of the change really points to more still needs to be done and can be done. We know from the research that we did that organizations that put in good governance practices are actually diversifying more quickly. And by good governance practices, I mean things like setting targets, having explicit policy. When you're doing your recruitment explicitly considering women for the role, that does make a difference. You move faster. But the biggest thing we found is that if you actually committed to filling half of your empty board seats with women, that's the sweet spot. That's the brass ring, if you will. Rob, you talked about how your board is diverse and how you're trying to make sure that your board has the diversity and that diversity is also inclusive. How is KPMG in Canada approaching its diversity? When we looked at our pipeline to the board a few years ago, we realized we needed to begin to address the gaps we have in the representation of women specifically, but other marginalized groups as well at the partnership level, because the partnership level is our feeder to our board. So at KPMG Canada, we have focused on addressing representation of women for many years, and we have made some pretty good progress, actually. And in 2018, we took this a step further to really build on and accelerate that process by setting goals for women specifically, but also for people of color as well. We set goals to reach 30% women and 20% people of color in the partnership by 2022. And this was all about bringing additional focus and attention to an area We'd already seen progress on, but really making it much more of a priority for all of us. 
So how do we make sure this became a priority for our partners? So we did two things. We linked certain KPIs around diversity to partner compensation. After all, money certainly talks, especially in an accounting firm like ours. And we also made these goals public. So we reported on them as part of our biannual IND reporting. And really this approach has worked pretty well so far. In our last year, 29% of our partnership were women and 19% were people of color. So we shouldn't meet or exceed our 2022 targets. And more importantly, 45% of our new partner promotions last year were women and 35% were people of color. Now we still have work to do, but I'm really proud of the progress that we've made to date. And I think one thing that's important to share, Susan talked about targets and goals. I just wanna make sure that what we're doing is not a quota system. Quotas tend to have an inherent downside. They may unintentionally diminish the skills and talents and achievements of underrepresented groups when they're promoted. For example, people telling them they were a diversity promote and therefore implying the bar was in some way lowered, which is clearly not the case. So this is why I'm a fan of goals or targets to ensure there's focus and progress, but I tend to dislike quotas. On the other hand, some organizations will never make it a priority unless it is required. I fully support whatever tactics make sense for organizations to get on board with this. Susan, what are your thoughts on quotas? We now have, I'm going to say, at least 10, probably closer to 15 years of experience globally with quotas. There are a number of European countries that have put hard quotas in, Norway being the first and the most famous. And when that happened, everybody thought, oh my goodness, capitalism in that country is going to implode and everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And of course, that didn't happen. There are certainly examples where quotas have been put in and it's fine. And there are examples of regimes where soft targets have been put in and are working also. We took a look at this. We didn't find huge differences. Clearly, in the Canadian context, in our business community, we don't like quotas. That goes against the general practices we have where we want to give people the autonomy and the authority to make their own decisions, and we don't like that kind of government regulation. The risk for the business community is that if you don't take care of a problem yourself over a period of time, and it is an issue or a problem that the broader society thinks is really not good for everybody, you do run the risk of getting regulated on this in a hard way. I personally don't think that needs to happen. We're 20 years out from parity. We can shorten that time frame quite considerably by being more intentional on how we fill those seats. Rob has given some great examples about how KPMG is intentional in how they do it. Other organizations could follow some of those practices. When you look at the Canadian business community, what you do find is the bigger organizations, the ones that have more resources, the ones who have been at the entire diversity and inclusion challenge for a long time, they have higher numbers and they are moving faster. There's an argument to be made for devoting more time and attention to understanding what is holding your organization back and how do you become more intentional. I don't think it's actually that difficult. Part of it comes down to, with respect to the board situation, figuring out how are you actually filling those seats? What are the barriers in your organization to filling the seats with a woman or a person of color or an LGBTQ person? We put a pretty good idea of what those barriers are right now. And I would say there are three. Two revolve around mindset, and the third revolves around how boards actually identify people for the seats. So the first mindset issue is people say the pool is too small. There aren't enough women to find the ideal candidate for my board, or there aren't enough Indigenous leaders, or there aren't this. Well, you know, part of what constrains boards there is they have a very narrow model of what it takes to be an effective director. Traditionally, it used to be you had to be a CEO to sit on a board. So that's a very small pool for everybody and a very narrow view. 
Today, organizations are operating environments that are much more complex. So you need a very different set of skills around the table. If boards broadened what their definition was of a good director, that would help. That leads to the second issue, which is how do we fill board seats? They're still often filled by tapping personal networks. There's an abundance of research that says we all like to hang out with people who look like us, who are similar to us in terms of gender or race or age. We are more comfortable with people like that. Networks are narrowed, and that makes it harder to actually see the full pool. The last thing I would say, and this is the other mindset issue, is we do observe a tendency for people not to want to be intentional about filling board seats with people from groups who are underrepresented because organizations have a sense that that might undermine the principles of meritocracy, and we believe in a meritocracy. Well, I believe in a meritocracy too, but I think meritocracy is an aspirational state. We do not operate in a meritocracy, and to think we do is at best naive. We should be aiming for meritocratic practices, but the reality is we make value judgments about people all the time, and people don't start from a level playing field. It's a very seductive concept to say, I'm choosing somebody based on their talent, but talent is subjective. And often I think it's just a smokescreen for, I want people who look like me. So really thinking hard about that myth of the meritocracy and understanding that there are systems issues that favor some people from coming on a board and they're not there because of a meritocracy can also help organizations look more broadly at the pool and what it takes and not discount people. Rob, you talked a little bit about the flip side of this idea of meritocracy, which was the concept that people are in those positions because of their diversity and how that can undermine folks. Do you agree with Susan's thinking that we need to be much more realistic when it comes to what we're looking at and how we understand how people are selecting and what this notion of meritocracy means? I agree with Susan. Like The number one excuse that I hear from people on this is that there isn't enough talent from underrepresented groups, which I think is just hogwash. My thinking is this, if you don't have qualified candidates in your pool, then it's a reflection on you. As a leader, it's my job to develop talent, including talent from underrepresented groups, folks that don't look like me, don't think like me, etc. A lot of the time, likeness bias tends to creep in, and Susan alluded to this. Leaders like to develop people who they see themselves in, like to spend time with, and therefore spend more time coaching and mentoring. And really giving those people who are like them the best opportunities. And then they, in turn, sort of see these people as more qualified. So that cycle continues. As leaders, you really have to break this cycle. It's about building the pipeline of diverse talent. To me, there are really two aspects of building this, this pipeline. It's attracting, but more importantly, retaining and promoting diverse talent. So as an example, KPMG in Canada, we've signed on to the Black North Initiative, where we've committed to hiring goals of at least 5% of our student hires being Black, and 3.5% of our executive and board roles being held by Black leaders by 2025. To get there in terms of leadership, we also need to commit to mentoring and really ensuring all of our people have good opportunities to excel. The ability to get to those high-profile projects, to get to that next level, can only be available to a select few. It really has to be truly equitable for all of us. You bring up the Black North Initiative. They've stated a goal similar to a goal that was originally put forward by women in terms of the representation. In Black North, it's 3.5% of executive positions and board seats held by Black leaders by 2025. 
What are some of the lessons that you think may be relevant for this other discussion of board diversity from the years that women have been advocating for their role on boards and their representation on boards? The barriers that women have faced in terms of being invited onto boards are very similar to the barriers that any group that is underrepresented face. There is a perception that the pools are too small. The pools are not too small. You have to look in different places for talent. There are challenges in terms of boards of directors finding these people if they're only tapping their own networks, because again, our networks are not as broad as we think they are. And I do think there are challenges when you come on a board and if you are the only one, if you are the other, whether you are a black man, an indigenous woman, a white woman, if you are a singular on a board, it is a challenge or it can be a challenge to feel included and to find your place at the board. It's incumbent on other directors and particularly on the chair to really work at helping that person be included and be recognized and be acknowledged. And that's not easy to do always. Inclusion is a skill set and a mindset that we all try and practice and try and do well at, but it's a learned skill. Women have worked hard and had found some advocates who help them be authentic at the board table and bring their style. And as other potential directors from other identified groups come on and have particular ways of doing things, we need to make sure that they get included and they feel welcomed and they understand the unwritten rules on the board and they understand how to navigate them. That mentoring that Rob talked about that's so important in organizations when they're committed to building a diverse pipeline of talent all the way to the top, that mentoring is true on the board also, particularly if you're coming onto a board where you are singular, you're the only person from your identity group. Helping navigate is important. So I think that's a lesson women have learned. And as people from other identity groups come on, they would do well to bear in mind, as would the board leadership. And actually, Susan, on that point, something that I'm going to start doing actually going forward on our board is to implement a bit of a buddy system for new board members as they come on to get on a board, to find your place, get your footing. It takes a good year to really get going. What I'm going to try to do is implement a buddy system for new board members, have an existing board member take this new board member under their wings and really mentor them, teach them some of the nuances of how the board operates, et cetera. So I think that will allow for new board members to get integrated and feel included much, much quicker. I think the other thing you're doing, you talked about, Rob, too, in your role as chair, to really reach out and to make sure everybody has an opportunity to speak, even viewpoints that are in the minority on the board are heard and so on is so important. And we know on the research side that that has been demonstrated to be one of the values women bring on the board is that they tend to be more the people who are going to call out the contrary viewpoint. They're not afraid to say it. They're not afraid to put it out there. And that I think is typical for people who've been in a minority status and have become successful too. You learn how to bring forth a viewpoint that might not be welcomed by everybody else, but you can bring it forward in a way that's effective. But everybody needs help to do that, particularly when they're new on a board, because boards have a very specific culture and each board has its own specific norms. And being effective means understanding how to work within those dynamics. One of the things that the research has identified is setting these targets. And Susan, in our most recent research, the target was this idea of parity. Thinking about 
how this board diversity issue has changed over the years, the target seems to be shifting a little bit. So there was a the 30% club that was a major institutional investor group that said, well, if we can get 30%, then that's good. There's this other idea that we've seen in the research around having it at a minimum three women directors. What would you say to board members who are telling you that the numbers and the targets keep shifting? The targets haven't shifted. The notion was always originally that we wanted proportional representation because we know that makes sense from a business standpoint. I'll take the gender viewpoint on this. Half of the university graduates are women now coming out of undergrad and grad schools. We look at the pipeline for talent throughout an organization and up until very senior management, it's roughly half and half men and women now. And the senior management ranks are changing. It would make sense to say, well, from a business standpoint, as well as from a moral standpoint, you should have parity at the top of the house. That's how you're going to get the best kinds of discussions and the best outcomes. That was never in question. What became very apparent, though, when you look at those early days where we started counting the numbers, we looked at the pace of change. It was going to take, literally, I can remember studies that said 70, 80 years to get to gender parity. Okay, so that's a crazy number. I think we all agree. But that is what was happening at that time. So there's a whole field of study around tokenism. What are the numbers you need to ensure that an organization isn't held hostage to tokenism so that the people who are in the minority group really do have a voice at the table and are not undermined by their status as being the only one? And that number through a variety of research turned out to be 30%. The three women on a board, if I recall the research correctly, was based on 10 or 11 board members, which is kind of an average board size. The 30% is really not the target we want. The 30% is the table stakes in the entry level. If you can get to 30%, the actual dynamics at the table shift dramatically. You no longer have directors feeling as conscious that they're in the minority or having to overcome some of those social dynamics at the table that we talked about earlier, learning the nuances, having people look at them as if they're representative of their whole identity group. Instead, when you get to be a significant minority, you start to shape the norms also. So it becomes much more inclusive. 30% is, it's not a target, it's a table stakes number. We've always been aiming for parity. We want to have the best talent rise and be our leaders. And frankly, talent distributes pretty equally across every identity group. White men don't have a lock on talent. Black women don't have a lock on talent. There's a bell curve everywhere. And so what we're saying is let's create a system where the people who want to take those leadership roles and have those capabilities can all rise up together. And that tends to be fairly consistent with their proportion in the general population. There was never a target of 30%. That was really, here's the minimum we need to get to, to change how things actually operate at the table. There are clearly opportunities to accelerate the inclusion of women on boards. Today, 50% of board seats are filled by men, roughly 25% are filled by women, and then the remaining 25% are either left vacant for a while or are eliminated. That, I'll call them the empty 25%, is a great opportunity to be much more intentional around who's coming to sit on your board. Rather than setting quotas at 50-50 and so on, our advice and our takeaway is that if boards were much more intentional about 
creating parity on their recruitment end, we would certainly get to parity for women much quicker. In fact, if you filled those remaining empty 25% seats with women, we'd be a parity within five years. The real opportunity here is think carefully about your recruitment and be very intentional. For every man you bring on, bring on a woman. So we're not saying men should never sit on a board again, far from it. Men and women should sit on boards equally. So let's be intentional about that practice. I really want to acknowledge that there is a sentiment out there that qualified white men are not putting their name forward for opportunities because they figure the position will go to somebody who is more, quote unquote, diverse. I think it's important for us to have braver conversations and really talk about this much more openly. Increasing board diversity is about leveling the playing field. It's about recognizing that barriers have existed historically and we're trying to remove them to create an equal opportunity for all of us. And frankly, that just didn't exist before. There are always biases and frankly, there still are. But I think the way we need to start looking at this is that if we can focus on diversity, it's going to create more opportunities for all of us. Since we're going to be creating more prosperous companies and a more prosperous Canada, which will ultimately benefit everybody. It's important that white men see their role in this not to opt out of opportunities, but really to opt into championing IND as part of their own leadership toolkits. It's an important leadership skill of today and the future, and it's ultimately going to create much more opportunities for them as well going forward. We've talked about the problem and the challenges and the pace of change and the difficulty in increasing the pace of change. Let's talk a little bit about solutions. If you were talking to a board member who's looking around the table and see faces that look all the same, What would you tell him, because it probably would be a him, that he should be doing? I've got four suggestions. The first question I would ask is, I would say, do you have board term limits? And if they didn't have board term limits, I would say you need to put them in because that creates a situation where you're going to automatically renew and refresh your board. Without term limits, there's always a risk that some directors stay around too long for a whole variety of reasons. And sometimes their colleagues are hesitant to ask them to move on. So term limits are important. The second thing I would suggest goes back to, again, how you define what kind of director you want. And I am a big believer in the use of board matrices. What are the skill sets that you need on the board? And what are the demographic characteristics you need to be identifying to fill out your board? I, at one point in time, chaired the governance committee for York University. I was on the board of governance there, and we had a skills matrix, and we had several categories of demographic characteristics that we wanted to make sure were present on the board. And so we always looked at those the same way we looked at whatever the particular skill or experience gap was that we were trying to fill. So I think being very logical and disciplined and being reflective of these things helps. That helps to move people away from the, well, to be on a board, you have to be a CEO or you have to be a C-suite person in business or you have to be this. So it's really, let's go back to skills. Let's go back to what perspectives do we need at the table? And then the last two recommendations I would have, and you could wrap them together, is how do we break the tendency to just tap our own personal networks for this? And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that ever. Certainly, if you know great people, bring them forward. Words need to find a way to explore the unexplored areas and look for leaders there. I think if a board is large enough, working with a recruitment firm to help identify candidates or working with organizations like the ICD that have big databases that you can go and call are a good place to start. 
having an agreement at the board that you're always going to look at a diverse slate of candidates. Typically, when boards fill seats, there is a greenfield list or there's a list of possible candidates they're looking at. If they do use a matrix, they'll map it against that. But making sure if you're talking to three or four or five people about a possible board seat that they don't all look the same. I think that's important too. So there are very tactical things boards can do to help move the needle. Rob, what would you say? Over the years, I mean, we've certainly strived to make our board representative of our partnership at uh, large. We've set some specific goals around that in terms of gender and people of color. And I've served on our nominating committee for a couple of years now. And the, the one thing that we make sure we do is we ask who has not put their hand up, who has not been nominated. Do we have otherwise qualified partners who can serve on the board who haven't been identified either you know, through self-nomination or, or somebody else nominating them? We don't just look at who is on the nominating slate. More importantly, we look at who's not on the list. And we ask lots of really good questions to make sure that we've got a diverse set of candidates. I want to add one more thing, if I could, Michael, to that. And and this is a, a tactic that organizations themselves can use in service of increasing the pool overall. So it would be possible for organizations to also identify amongst their senior women or people of color or whatever the identity group is, those who might be suitable for candidacy in another company's board. And sometimes organizations are hesitant to do that because a board commitment is a big commitment of time and energy and bandwidth. Some companies will say, maybe the CEO can sit on one other board, but none of our C-suite executives. I would question that. I think sitting on a board is a great development opportunity. It allows somebody to flex their leadership muscles in other contexts. I think it actually makes them a better leader in their own organization. And that's not something you see a lot of now, not with the intentionality that would need to accompany that kind of action. Are you optimistic that the pace of change, the diversity of boards for women, for racialized Canadians will improve? I'm very optimistic. I can remember the early days when we started the business community to focus on this and we started to study it. And it literally was many decades till we were going to achieve parity for women. And the fact that it's now looking like two decades speaks to the acceleration that has occurred, and that's good. We do see those numbers rise every year. They don't, they're only rising by a percent or a percent and a half, but they are rising. And that's reason for hope in and of itself. And the last thing I would say is the conversation is becoming much more sophisticated about this. I have more conversations with organizations now who understand that you don't need to be a CEO to be an effective board director, who understand that their own networks are limited, who are taking on better board governance practices, and all these things help moving forward. I actually am reasonably optimistic that when it comes to women on boards, we'll see parity inside of 10 years, and it'll be a very different discussion then. Women are the largest identity group that are accessing boards now that haven't traditionally. Hopefully, the gains made there make it easier for other identity groups to find their way onto our boards of directors. Rob, what makes you optimistic? I'm actually quite excited about the um, progress that we've made so far and the sort of trajectory that we're on right now. There's more and more visibility and accountability today. When you look at the media, when you look at our regulators, our clients, our people, they're really putting a spotlight on it and really demanding for us to make change. Pretty well every other RFP that we're responding to today demands transparency into our IND efforts that we're making and the sort of progress that we're making uh, as well. 
There's a ton of accountability. It's clearly the right thing to do from a moral and from a fairness perspective, but I'm just seeing more and more it's becoming a business imperative, and it's just something that we have to focus on. Susan and Rob, thank you so much for taking some time to go through this work and your approach to this really important issue. Thank you, Michael. Thanks very much, Michael. A pleasure. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Our production team includes Andy Joy, who's our writer, and Sarah Mels, who supports on the audio editing. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.